Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Working on Southeast Asia, one thing we tend to hear a lot of is the notion that civil society is shrinking and that authoritarianism is on the rise. In fact, the rise of anti-democratic and anti-liberal forces and ideas seems to be on the rise around the world, not just in Southeast Asia. But today's guest argues that these conceptualizations conceal as much as they reveal, and that, in fact, there are profound political changes taking place within civil society itself. As he says, a better analytical framework is needed to understand rising authoritarianism and how to potentially arrest it. To discuss these ideas, I am joined by Gary Roden, Honorary Professor of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland, Emeritus Professor of Politics and International Studies at Murdoch University, and an elected Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Gary's research thematically analyzes dynamic regime struggles between authoritarian, liberal and democratic forces and ideologies in Southeast Asia. He gives special analytical attention to the underlying political economy foundations of these struggles. Gary's new book with Cambridge University Press, Civil Society in Southeast Asia, Power Struggles and Political Regimes, is out in October 2022. Gary, welcome to CX Stories. Thank you very much, Natalie. So let's start with this popular claim that civil society is shrinking in Southeast Asia and indeed globally. What is this claim based on? Where are these debates emerging from? They're quite extensive debates. They traverse academic literature, civil society groups themselves, and an array of regional and national and international bodies, including the United Nations. All of these groups talk about have produced publications and reports that conduct case studies and produce results from those case studies of various countries or regions in the world. And the themes that come out of these studies are things like an observed increase in restrictions placed on freedom of expression, assembly and association, the introduction of assorted legal, administrative and even extra-legal and political measures to curtail the activities of civil society organisations, as well as the erosion of the separation of powers, especially the independence of the judiciary, which has resulted in the politicisation of the judiciary, opened the door more or less to various forms of violence and attacks on the activities of CSOs with impunity. To be more concrete, just to give some examples of what form these impediments take, we're talking about defamation laws and criminalisation of previously permitted activities are used to target activists. Human rights advocates and offenders have also faced accusations of being foreign agents and defamed as terrorists as one technique used to try and deter civil society activity. There's also been the blocking of national authorities of international funding support for CSOs by national governments or other authorities, particularly those that pursue rights-based claims and advocate for accountability and governance reform agendas. Organisations receiving funds from foreign aid sources are in many cases actually banned in some political regimes. It's not confined, though, to what some people call hybrid regimes or established liberal democracies. It's a worldwide phenomenon. One study that's done by the International Centre for Not-for-Profit Law identified new restrictions on civil society 
either enacted or under consideration between 2012 and 2018 in as many as 78 countries. And that included advanced capitalist countries with established liberal democracies. So it's a it's a broad range of activities that may differ in form and concentration from one regime to another. It's a global problem. And it even extends to the activities of multilateral and international organisations. For example, a North Atlantic Treaty Organisation and the Group of 20 have both in the past banned demonstrations at their events. There's no point denying that there is a pattern towards curbs that close down the space of civil society. But the point that's often missed by people making these claims about a shrinking space of civil society is that anti-democratic movements are also conducted through civil society. And I stress through civil society, a site of contestation between groups, as well as a site for cooperation potentially among groups. And that is the key argument that your new book is making, that civil society is a place where these anti-democratic forces are coming into confrontation with each other or manifesting or, or testing each other out. Can you give us some examples of where that is occurring in a Southeast Asian context? In almost every one of them, there are changes that are going on that are giving rise to new tensions. I, I suppose the, the most obvious one of great significance for a political regime has been the continuing conflict in Thailand, where there's been great political polarisation. And at one point in this struggle over political regimes, there were street battles between so-called red shirts and yellow shirts that represented reformist oriented civil society organisations aligned with political parties and conservative and reactionary forces in civil society aligned with established political elites. I'm interested to know more about the work your new book does to theorise civil society in terms of emphasising the forces that shape civil society. But before I ask you what those forces are, can I ask you to share with our audience how you define civil society? Because not everybody listening comes from a political science background. And I think it's useful before we start thinking about the forces that are shaping it to first define what civil society is as you understand it. Yep. And it's a pretty important question because there are multiple definitions of civil society. For some people at one extreme of the debate about how it is defined or understood, almost any form of collective organisation that involves social groups acting promote a particular idea or set of interests can qualify. But I'm at the other extreme of the spectrum where I, with quite a lot of other people for that matter, who maintain that collective political action has to be political in nature. And so what that means is that if you're acting collectively to agitate for a political policy or to take a course of action that affects power relations or either to, to defend or challenge power relations, then you're operating through civil society. That's a bit different from an idea that any form of action conducted collectively among people is part of civil society. But it also means that groups can act both apolitically and politically, and so they can move into operating in the political realm. So, for example, religious organisations, in some cases, periodically get involved in political issues and try and canvass and rally support for a particular position that they hold, might be on abortion, for example. And at that point, they enter civil society by operating collectively and mobilising to try and influence a political outcome. But 
for a lot of the rest of the time, they may be acting apolitically. Interesting. Okay, I think that's really useful that you're sharing with us where you're coming from when you talk about civil society. So what are the forces that shape civil society? Well, as I see it, they're social, they're economic, and they're ideological. And you can probably summarise that as that they're both structural and ideational, and that they're interrelated. So the political impact of changing social and economic structures is mediated by which views prevail on how the society and economy should be organised and why. And I argue in my particular approach, my distinctive approach, the particular model of capitalist development is profoundly important to the sorts of conflicts and the coalitions of interest that define and distinguish complexions of civil forces across different countries. Now, you know, at the broadest level, just to pick up on your last question, we can see, for example, that capitalist dynamics not only shape the sectoral mix of an economy, but also its class composition. So we have different mixes of agricultural, industrial, service sectors, and they contain different balances of social classes. So, you know, different balances of working, middle class and business classes from one country to another. Then there are dynamics such as the changing role of women in a capitalist society as it develops, the impact on the environment as it develops, implications for the comparative allocation of resources between, say, urban and rural communities. And crucially, the sort of conflicts and alliances of interest that can emerge to foster new collective organisations in civil society or maybe to strengthen or weaken existing ones. But, you know, the forms this can take, people would generally associate with civil society would be things like pressure groups, trade unions, business organisations, professional organisations, right up to mass movements. In my position, I also regard political parties as integral to civil society. Some people make a distinction between what they call civil society and political society. The way I view it is these are formal and informal actors in civil society. You know, political parties may be formal, but operating politically, just as informal civil society organisations are acting politically, and that one of the most important considerations when you're analysing civil society and its dynamics and potential is the degree to which there may or may not be links, really meaningful links between political parties and organically based informal civil society groups. Yeah, when we think about the way civil society struggles are usually conceptualised, it's often in terms of a contest between civil society and some other entity like uncivil society or, or state power. But what you're saying that this is not an adequate model and it's not capturing what you're observing in your work in Southeast Asia in particular. No, it's not an adequate model. It's helping to conceal and obscure some of the complexities of civil society. And in particular, it's obscuring the relationship between civil society and state touch on some of these ideas about an uncivil society, for example, that some people talk about. That's a popular way of looking at making a distinction between different groups that might be politically active and it's, be, it's reasonably influential. That idea is often grounded in a normative assumption that civil society is inherently good. And this is a romantic assumption and one that I would have thought from the work of Sherry Berman on the rise of fascism that brought down the democratic experiment of the Weimar Republic in Germany years ago constituted a rather compelling argument about how civil society can and often does harbour profoundly anti-democratic elements. And nevertheless, some theorists took heed of that and others haven't. And we need to not be so preoccupied with 
some normative idealistic version of what civil society is, but instead try and understand when and why particular forces and ideas seek to attract support through civil society. Yeah, do you think that tendency to assume civil society is good is because we're confusing it with some kind of notion of civilised society? Yes, I think that's right. And it actually gets used. And it's either implicit or explicit in, in a lot of the literature. And the point that I make in my book is that civil society actually harbours lots of inequalities and power differentials. And the idea that we can understand it as people getting along in a consensual fashion and you know solving problems and acting cooperatively, that does happen at times. But it's not the definition of civil society. It's also a site or an arena within which you know, serious struggles over how state power should be used are fought out. And alliances with different groups in the state are also integral to those struggles. In particular, about the concept of civil, I would say that one of the things that this book shows and that I think many theorists have been able to show in other studies is that civility in and of itself doesn't guarantee that political regimes are working or civil society itself is working to enable effective and meaningful contestation over how state power is exercised. So no matter how civilised civil society modus operandi might be, this may or may not result in certain groups ever getting a proper hearing or having meaningful influence over how state power is exercised, whether their policy agendas are ever considered, ever have any influence, or are just completely disregarded. In a very civil manner. Exactly. And I think a lot of the polarisation that we've got today can be traced to that naive assumption that there are groups who feel totally disempowered by many liberal democratic regimes, but other regimes as well, because despite the appearances of opportunities to have an input, the actual systems work and the ways in which you draw power to try and influence decision-making is quite uneven. So in your book, you're focusing on four different Southeast Asian countries with quite different characteristics. So you look at populism in the Philippines, you look at crony capitalism in Malaysia, technocratic state capitalism in Singapore, and the monarchy and the military in Thailand. And these are all drawing from your chapter titles here. Why have you chosen to analyse these four countries together as a way of better understanding civil society, despite these quite different characteristics? Well, it's precisely because they have different characteristics, because the framework that I'm adopting in this book, Modes of Participation Framework, which is a political economy framework, that ideational and structural factors, it's got to be able to explain why there are these differences. And so it's got to have a mix of different forms of capitalism and different political regimes to show how they can all be explained and the different experiences and trajectories of civil societies and the sorts of struggles that define those civil societies, indeed the extents to which there are civil societies at all, as well as the complexions of them, how they can be understood. So they were chosen partly because there was enough difference between them. So, you know, the Philippines, for example, has had one of the longest experiences of electoral democracy in the region. In Thailand, there's been lots of military coups and interruptions to electoral democracy. And then you've got Malaysia and Singapore that are predominantly been authoritarian regimes, but also have electoral systems. And so looking through the prisms of the different sorts of capitalisms and how that 
creates a context that might help us understand how civil societies fare and why was aided by having these different case studies. So one of the frameworks that you use is this mode of participation. Can you tell us what this framework is and how you've used it in the book to develop your ideas around civil society? First started with a colleague of mine, Kanishka Jayasuriya, and I who wrote a piece in 2007 about modes of participation. And incrementally, it's been refined and developed and applied in different ways since, and this is the latest of it. Now, essentially, a mode of participation is a way of looking at things that breaks out of sort of institutional ideal types and enables us to compare all different regimes. So we can ask the same question about all different regimes. Core question that I want to ask through that framework is, what are the possibilities and limits to political contestation? So a mode of participation refers to the institutional arrangements and accompanying ideological rationales determining the permissible limits to who can politically participate, how and on what basis. And, you know, I've argued before that some modes of participation may support substantial challenges to deeply entrenched power relations, others not so. And I distinguish civil society from three other modes of participation, societal incorporation, administrative incorporation, and individualised political expression, which have all been dealt with elsewhere, as the political space with the greatest scope for independently created forms of collective action. So that's what marks civil society off from other modes of participation. And, you know, civil society is the one mode of participation where the boundaries of civil society are to varying degrees flexible and shaped by the activists themselves. And therefore, civil society poses the greatest potential threat to existing state powers and related interests, mainly elite interests. But this isn't axiomatic because civil society also has the greatest potential to serve as a powerful support for prevailing state power relationships and elites. And that's what the book does. It tries to illustrate both of these tendencies or possibilities. You can really see the pressing demand to understand civil society in order to maximise the potential to use it for good rather than for evil. So we don't have time to go into the four countries in your book, but I would like to ask you to tell us a bit about the case of Thailand. You note that contemporary civil society coalitions have often been conservative or reactionary but that progressive reformist forces have also had their moments of opportunity and influence. And in Thailand, these progressive forces were crucial to changes of government. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and on the counter-reaction that it prompted within civil society? Well, Thailand had a watershed constitution, which was crafted in 1997, and this paved the way for a return to electoral politics, which had been in deep freeze since uh, a coup in 1991. And yet, After the elections were called by 2006, a democratic elected government, which had been operating under the emerging business tycoon Thaksin Shinawatra, again been overthrown in another military coup. And that coup was supported, legitimised and celebrated by anti-democratic forces in civil society. The process was repeated again in 2014, which ushered in comprehensive state powers protecting an established oligarchy, incorporating business, monarchy and military interests, which have long defined the political regime in Thailand. Now, if we want to understand this process, and this is where I can draw on the 
importance of the structural economic factors in a fairly direct way, Thailand's dramatic shifts towards and away from liberal democracy have been linked to another watershed, historical watershed, and I'm referring to the 1997-98 Asian financial crisis and its impacts in Thailand, because it was that crisis that helped generate new coalitions in civil society, highlighting conflicts over who should politically participate, how and on what, which was what the 1997 constitution was supposed to address. These conflicts, which led to polarisation of different forces in civil society, were due not to the failure of democracy or the institutional arrangements which were prescribed by the drafting committee in 1997. These conflicts were due rather to the very success, not failure, of democratic representation because elected governments between 2001 and 2006 and then 2011 to 2014 actually advanced the interests of hitherto marginalised socioeconomic groups and challenged powerful established interests. And that was the political problem. And I think of all the case studies in the book, it's Thailand that most starkly gives expression to how mobilisation of forces through civil society in both opposition to and defence of democratic elements links to contrasting social, economic and ideological interests, who controls capitalism and how the fruits of it are distributed. Street battles between red shirts and yellow shirt activists on the different sides of that struggle may have passed, at least for the time being. But what's happening since that point is we've seen that putting the democratic genie, elections genie anyway, back in the bottle is not a simple matter because support for Thailand's rural and urban poor for socially redistributive measures has that made it the election of governments that aroused the ire of so many reactionary and conservative forces hasn't disappeared. And so the challenge intensified at the ideological level to try and justify and rationalise why a return to that reform agenda is not viable or acceptable to political elites in least established political elites in Thailand, but continues to be a matter of great uh, contestation by reformist groups in civil society. I'm sorry, I've only got time to ask you about Thailand, but I know our listeners, if they're interested to learn more about Singapore, Malaysia and the Philippines and the way you're thinking about civil society there, I would refer them to your book. But let me finish up by asking you, how can this new theory of civil society help us resist authoritarianism? It's really the big question. Yeah, it's a great question. has to be asked and it should be foremost in the minds of Democrats who study this problem. And I suppose, broadly speaking, the theory highlights the importance of those two interrelated factors contributing to the appeal of rising authoritarianism. I'm talking about escalating inequalities, particularly under neoliberalism, and the demonstrated ineffectiveness of many liberal democracies in particular in accommodating challenges and reforms to propose that pattern from neoliberalism. We see this all around the world. The points need to be acknowledged. What they really infer is that a distinction that we can draw between substantive and procedural democracy, and much of the focus in the past on trying to stem tendencies towards authoritarianism or reform authoritarianism, particularly through international aid programs and and democracy promotion programs that are part of that, has been the idea that we have to perfect the institutions of formal and informal democracy or attempts to get to that point. 
as if there is some sort of ideal typical or ideal institutional arrangement that's going to maximise the likelihood of avoiding authoritarianism. This overlooks the foundations, the social foundations, the economic foundations out of which authoritarianism arise. So I think, you know, the reason if you look at, let's say, the election of Rodrigo Duterte and Ferdinand Marcos Jr. in the Philippines in recent years, for example, who are pushing an authoritarian populist direction, to understand that support for authoritarianism, you'd have to acknowledge that previous regimes of democracy have been totally ineffective in delivering substantive reform and substantive change, not least land reform, which is so important to overcoming poverty and creating a more egalitarian society. This framework doesn't isolate institutional issues from the social foundations and and the groups and interests that win or lose from the different ways that economies are organised. And that leads to a profoundly important question or issue, and that is acknowledging the political nature of any form of economic development. It has winners and losers. And policymakers and investors, whether they be national or international, and donors and aid, whether they private or public or government or non-government, each time they make these policy decisions on where to invest and how to invest, it can have implications for the social and political consequences, who wins and who loses, and what sort of coalitions are likely to form. This is not just a an issue for the internal politics of particular countries, but also takes on international dimensions. I suppose we could look at development assistance programs and foreign aid. In some cases, countries outside or donors outside of during authoritarianism are receiving aid that contributes to greater inequality, and programs can contribute to greater inequality that may exacerbate rather than resolve the problem of rising authoritarianism. They may be fueled to the fire by further disillusioning people that their prospects can be improved by assisting with the existing political regime. And David Zog has pointed out that conditions by the World Bank and IMF that are often attached to loans about workers' rights to collective action and prescriptions about labour relations in various countries can be regarded in some respects as hostile to collective actions of independent trade unions. You know, we shouldn't forget that powerful independent trade unions were historically pivotal to social democratic reforms in post-World War II period in Western Europe and Australia and many other places, which gave rise to more egalitarian outcomes from capitalist development. And many of those have been reversed in established liberal democracies in recent decades. And it's not coincidental, therefore, there are disillusioned people in places like the United States and other advanced capitalist countries who provide a receptive ear to the extreme right populist programs and claims of leaders who are providing an alternative solution, apparently or supposedly, to some of the erections that have happened in the past. Gary, I think you've done a wonderful job of demonstrating how the lessons from Southeast Asia 
how we can draw on those lessons to think about issues that apply globally, as you have done in your book and in this discussion today. And if you're interested in reading Gary's new book, it's published with Cambridge University Press, and it's called Civil Society in Southeast Asia. Gary, thank you so much for joining us on SEAC Stories. Thank you, Natalie. Very pleased to talk to you, and thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to SEAC Stories. Brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.